I certainly see the plasticity and the infinite possibilities there are within language as a way to expand the limits of the, the quote unquote world and of a way to dream of another world where liberation is possible and to try and in some way approach it in language as a way of possibly imminentizing it. Some people might think that's sort of anarchical or utopian, but I think that one needs the, the audacity to be able to dream of these things. And that is what I'm trying to do in language. You're listening to Parallel Careers, where writers who also teach share the big ideas and practical tips that they take into the classroom. I'm Liz Howard. I'm a mixed settler and Anishinaabe poet, editor, and teacher based here in Toronto on the traditional territories of the Mississauga of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, and the Wendat. And it is, of course, now home to diverse Indigenous peoples and people from all around the world. And I'm originally from a really small town called Chaplow um, in Northern Ontario on Treaty 9 territory. I remember I was, was quite young. I was maybe four or five years old. And my, my mother and I had been donated a box of books. And these were books filled with words and like not pictures and I couldn't read. And I remember staying up at night and just staring at these pages and sort of w- trying to will uh, these marks to reveal their secrets to me. I had this sense that there was so much knowledge out there that I didn't have access to that were contained in books that was contained in, in, in written language. And I was sort of desperate to access it, to understand. And eventually I did, eventually I, you know, I did learn how to read. And once I came across uh, an old copy of Macbeth that was in a, a, a box in the basement uh, of my mother's things. And she had uh, dropped out of high school when she was 16. And I suppose she'd never returned some of the books that she had, you know, from a, from an English class. And I started reading Macbeth, And of course, I didn't quite, you know, understand everything, but the core images of the, the strange sisters, the, the witches uh, who spoke in trochaic tetrameter and of a, of a murdered king and a, and a sleepwalking, you know, sort of guilty queen uh, stuck with me. And something of the rhythm, how it was written, it stuck in my head, almost like an earworm. I found my, my thoughts, my internal thoughts, tuning or sort of entraining to this, uh, to this rhythm that had launched itself into my brain from reading, from reading Macbeth. And then years later, a, a friend uh, brought me to the town library, uh, and I'd never seen so many books before, and I was very excited. Shakespeare was located in the drama section, which was right beside the poetry section. And so naturally, I, I drifted over to the poetry section. I took out, um, I think, like an anthology of modern verse. And I also read a lot of Canadian poetry, like Leonard Cohen and Irving Layton and Susan Musgrave. And it informed certain sensibilities that I had around language and lineation and content and what could be done with words uh, and, the, and the freedom and possibility. And then when I was about... 11 years old, my youngest brother was born and I had to move into the basement of our house. And the house is located out on the highway 
between a, a swamp and a graveyard. And behind the house is sort of like the boreal forest and sort of stretches north all the way to, to James Bay, to like the James Bay lowlands. And I spent a lot of time in the forest and writing, uh, writing in the forest. And, the, you know, the land very much entered into the content of my poems. And then also in the basement, I had a dream one night that I screamed so loud that I woke up dead in the graveyard. And in the dream, I left my house and the people from the graveyard were sort of coming towards me in an, in an angry sort of way to confront me for, for waking them from the dead. And I came to see sort of my writing as a, as a conversation with another realm or the dead or an, or an ancestral realm. And I think those experiences um, made me a writer, whether I intended to sort of be one or not. Lookbook. Over there on the green lawn under a sick pine is the body of the bird. His plumage blue when I go to look at him and wonder if he's dead, but his chest sort of heaves. So I bend down closer. Look at how the breast of the bird splits open and a fist of maggots spills out on the grass. A necklace of sticky pearls in peristalsis ribbed and shining in the July light, invertebrates that form an anecdote before I go back into our clapboard house to look at the Sears catalog and dream I'm a girl posed into happiness. Look at me here now in this new dress I bought with my own money at age 20. In the city, when the cops question me, I flash my passport thinking of lichen inching down a branch of a tree over the town river when I was small. And somewhere my birth father is drunk and homeless, half mad when the cops ask for his name, he'll say, December. Infinite Citizen of the Shaking Tent is uh, a book of poetry in four parts. And it uses as an extended metaphor, the ceremony of the shaking tent, which is an Anishinaabe sacred rite in which a Jisakuin or conjurer enters a tent, which is specifically constructed for the purpose of receiving information from, the, from beyond the human world, information of, about the future. There's a sort of or, or oracular element to it. Uh, and also as a, as a way to receive information about, you know, relatives at a distance and all manner of things. I had come to a point in my writing where I'd seen my, my writing as in kind with this ceremonial rite, that sort of writing or poetry itself was a sort it was a metaphorical shaking tent for myself. And the book largely deals with um, mixed race identity of being both Indigenous and Anishinaabe and also settler. And so this is an identity which is uh, somewhat fraught and perhaps even at, at odds with itself. In terms of finding form, something that I always tell my students is that the page is, is a frame and also a field, an energetic field of of possibility and of potential. So how a poem is arranged 
on a page. And, you know, the blank space around and within a poem can speak as much uh, as what is written there. So in my first book, I have several poems, such as Lookbook in 1992, which all feature short, heavily enjammed lines. The reason that I chose this form was, number one, it's, it's a visual signal to the reader that a specific poetic experience is about to happen. All of those poems contain first-person anecdotes, but they are heavily enjammed so as to kind of stop, to interrupt the reading process. So you can't just really skim over it. You really have to read each line. And it's often enjammed in a way that it's sort of, it's resisting sense. You know, you really have to slow down and, and take it in a kind of piecemeal fashion and, and knit it all together. Because I find, you know, it's so easy to just sort of skim a kind of anecdotal poem. Uh, and this sort of like slows down the process to allow a sense of gravity to enter. Probability cloud. The universe broadcasts its lifespan in radiant heat. I need to believe my account will outpace its ending. Technical oracle, a feed that repeats itself, a reckoning. What I felt was complete disorientation. But the night crossed out sky is more than a map to read into the end and origin of everything. There is a guilt that folds into me like humanity, a darkness in the signal. A mark science confides is evidence of another universe, the collision of an afterbirth. If I continue, can I hold the body beyond its contact traces of violation and intimacy? The palimpsest furniture of our specious present, a succession of excess, I am here, after all, for decadence and silence. See this decadence? A bloom beneath the skin of my invitation. Not truth, but surface. The hole in the sky. Letters in a Bruised Cosmos is my second collection that came out with McClellan and Stewart in June uh, 2021. And it invokes both uh, Western astrophysical science and cosmology, as well as uh, Indigenous, specifically Anishinaabe sky knowledge, to examine the impact and the marks that we leave on and in each other as we, as we move through life on not only an interpersonal level, but also a generational level and, and across history as well. I feel as though I largely have the disposition of, uh, of a scavenger, of really making use of what is on hand. And I also think that perhaps having an education where, you know, the three R's reduce, reuse, and recycle was sort of hammered into my head may have translated somewhat into my own work. And it's also in a way reflective or perhaps, you know, a product of poverty. When I was a kid, my mom and I would often, you know, go thrifting at, at the secondhand store in town because we couldn't really, you know, afford anything else in terms of buying clothes. 
And my mother also spent a, a substantial amount of time and I, and, and I would, of course, you know, being, being a kid have to come with her, but she would go to the town dump to find little, little projects and things of interest and, you know, whatever could be useful that people have just thrown away. And a lot of the books that I had as a kid came from the dump. So I really feel that this sort of reusing, recycling, scavenging is sort of really in my blood. And also repetition itself is coming through a lineage that extends probably even before her repetition of, of language through, through Gertrude Stein and then studying with Marga Christakis and also reading the work of Lisa Robertson and also listening to a lot of music that's characterized by remixing and sampling. So in my work, I'm always trying to make a sort of sewing motion in which things return. So having different elements return, but in slightly different ways that produces a sort of haunting or a kind of echo within the text. And I'm also interested in how that works in terms of memory and how encountering the same material in a new context then sort of cues one's memory for encountering it in a previous context. And this is an, an idea which comes to me through cognitive psychology. And I worked in a cognitive, I managed a cognitive psychology at U of T for, for nine years. And I was interested in how I could try and introduce some of those ideas or principles into my writing. I advise my students to, to keep notes and a journal, a dedicated writing journal, physical if, if possible, and to go to texts uh, that they might find interesting or that they might even encounter in every day. Like our, our lives are actually full of text, whether we intend to be exposed to it or not. Like even, even tweets, even just, you know, scrolling, you encounter so much written language. And I encourage them to, to write down interesting things that they, that they see or maybe even overhear and to work with that material or even write in conversation with pieces of, uh, of material that they've sort of borrowed or thrifted. I've asked students to pick a, you know, a lyric or chorus uh, of a song and to try and write in the rhythm write in the rhythm of that, that piece of music or to write in the rhythm of a, of a line from a poem that they really love and to try and, re, you know, to sample it and place it inside of their own work and sort of remix it and remix their work around it. Practice, you know, breaking it down and deconstructing it into its elementary parts and plugging it into your own work. I dream in Gmail. PMS winter solstice, the hereditary gist of a fractal interior. I buried another yesterday by the back door of this expanding universe just before I dreamt in Gmail. As if all new visions visit digitally, a reply all clear de coeur from Athens, a BCC promoted puncture streamed via cave system linked to the romantic history of strange quarks. Spooky action at a distance, I slid down a snowbank into a northern stream, and then you smiled as if you like me now, now that my ass is wet. At midnight, that stream became the border between New France and my dream of being intelligible. Then I'm awake in the garage with my firstborn thought, a thought that sublimates into a braid of snowflakes. 
What could offer me an office in the February pension? A warmth that only makes its way into the deepest pockets. A novice love that can't help but become a flight risk. An exercise that I often share with students is one that was introduced to me when I was a graduate student in Dan Brand's poetry workshop. Of course, this was this experience was so foundational. And she had us write down three things. The first thing was a sight of astonishment, you know, something that you saw that completely sort of overwhelmed or struck you. Could be something that is like incredibly beautiful. A lot of people who've done this exercise, you know, they wrote about like the, the Grand Canyon or even, you know, something kind of scary or shocking. The second thing is to write about your first memory or a very early memory in as much detail as you're able to. And the third thing is to write about when you first believe that you became self-aware. So saw yourself as a self or like experienced a sense of, you know, of an inner mind and failing that a time you were really self, maybe self-conscious or like aware of yourself or, or even embarrassed. And so I'll have students write out each of those. And then in timed increments, working through those three prompts to then free write in response to each one of those prompts. So not just writing about the specific thing you saw or the specific memory, but to write about all of the things that are also coming through in parallel when you consider that experience. So it might include all the sort of the details, but also like internal sensations, other associations that might be coming through in your mind whatever those are, and in as much detail as possible. And even if your mind starts to wander away from it, to write that as well, to allow whatever comes through, just trying to get it down on the page. And so then you kind of have a lot of material. And then I ask students to go through and circle parts of what they've written that they find particularly striking in terms of the word use, the imagery, or even something sort of like artful about what they were able to express without necessarily intending to, things that they might want to work with, and then to bring forward that cut material, and then to try and shape it into, to shape each into a stanza. So first stanza has to do with material that you're shaping from the site of astonishment. Stanza number two, the earliest memory. Third stanza, a moment of self-awareness or self-consciousness. And usually when, I, when I've done this assignment, the poems that people write are incredible because as you're shaping, you're sort of looking for ways that, you know, how are these different discrete moments going to be in conversation with each other on the page? It's an interesting experiment. Inkwell is a great organization that offers writing workshops and mentorship sort of opportunities to people in the community in Toronto um, who have lived experience of mental illness and substance use issues. And all of these workshops are led by established or, you know, they say, you know, award-winning writers who themselves also have uh, lived experience. I was able to run a, a few different workshops. I framed most of them on writing exercises tied to specific poems, and I would take prompts from those poems 
and then the participants would then write through them. And the vast majority of the prompts were based on situatedness and the land, the specific land that the individuals may have been situated on, you know, somewhere in Toronto, maybe their specific neighborhood, the specific streets that they live on, the different, you know, structures, houses, um, shops, buildings, you know, institutions that are sort of around them. And also this, the different creatures that they might encounter writing, you know, in conversation, perhaps, or from the perspective or writing about pigeons and squirrels and raccoons and so on and so forth. Because there are all these places really in the city or throughout the city where you can see the quote, you know, the quote unquote natural world or a kind of wildness erupting or disrupting human development and, and organization. And I thought that that would be an interesting aperture, sort of opening, opening into a discussion of, of poetry. I think it's important to feel rooted somewhere, to have a starting point and then to use poetry as a, as a tool for exploration and experimentation and interpretation. You've been listening to Parallel Careers, which is produced by myself, Claire Tayson, in partnership with the New Quarterly Literary Magazine. Aaron McIndoe Sproul is our technical producer and story editor. Financial and in-kind support was provided by the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund, St. Jerome's University, and the Government of Canada. The music you heard on this episode was composed by Amadeo Ventura. You can hear more of his music at amadeoventura.weebly.com. Visit tnq.ca slash parallel for more information on Liz's work, including her most recent collection, Letters in a Bruised Cosmos. There you can also listen to outtakes from this episode and check out more teaching and writing tips. Thanks for listening.